We are in our final week of Colossians. If it's your first time with us today, I'll give you a little background in a moment to this letter. It's just four chapters. But for those of us that have been journeying together, you can watch any of the other five sermons on YouTube or on our podcast as well. But we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4, and I'm just going to be doing verses 2 through 6 this morning. The last few verses are Paul saying hi to a lot of people and speaking on behalf of a lot of people. And it is a lot of fun, that passage, and can speak some life. I encourage you, read it on your own. You get to see why we know that Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, was a doctor. Because this little passage, he calls him a doctor, Epaphras, Titus, they all make an appearance in the end of this letter. But we're going to be sticking to verses 2 through 6 this morning. If you'll read with me, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul's writing and closing out his letter. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim the message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray this morning. Lord, we are thankful that we have, God, these letters, that we have the records of those saints and apostles who wrote to one another the beautiful mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you and the church has preserved it for these 2,000 years that we may learn how to live in the shadow of the cross, that we may learn how to live in the power of the resurrection. We thank you, Jesus, that you are alive, and we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by sharing a little story from this past Friday. This past Friday, uh, my wife and I with her family celebrated um, uh, pre-Easter or pre-Easter because our family's not going to be able to be together around Easter. So we came together and um, her family is Southern Italian. And so they make this thing called Pizza Gain. How many of you ever heard of Pizza Gain? Oh, yeah, a few of you. Great. It's New Jersey, so there's a few of us. And it's like a, a calzone and an omelet had a baby and it's a big pizza dough, and inside of it is eggs and salty meats and cheeses. It's breakfast and dinner and lunch in between. It's fantastic. Uh, and then a lamb cake, a cake literally in the shape of a lamb that you then cut up as you eat it. Very Eastery, um, and there's a lot of metaphor in that. And as we celebrated it together, it kind of came out of a bit of my wife's heart for her family. She's the middle child, and so she is the family glue and has a strong desire to have us all together and stay together. And reflecting on it, I had thought and kind of realized that I've been around her family now for 18 years. That is half of my life. Officially, I have been around Kate's family as long as I have uh, not been around Kate's family. So it is a part of me now. And I was thinking back to when we were first dating and the dynamic of the family back then. And there was a lot of what we would call social cohesion, a lot of moments where we came together. 
Thanksgiving, there'd be these hockey games. We'd rollerblade and we'd play hockey together. I don't play hockey, but for her family, I would. My feet are much bigger than anyone else in the family, so I'd have bloody toes, but I'd, but I'd do it. I'd do it. We'd play it together. Her father had a huge property and a huge house with a wraparound porch. There'd be parties all throughout the summer, big picnics together, and everyone was kind of around the same age and the cousins, and we all celebrated together. But over 18 years, we became aware of what happens in every family, just this family drift, right? Get older, people start moving away, other sides of the country, having kids, doing their own things. And we had started sensing from some of the family this idea of like, ah, the family's just not together the way they were. And so out of my wife's beautiful brain and heart, she was like, we got to do something about this. We got to work this. So out of it came a family group chat that everybody's talking together. It came uh, bi-monthly events that we would just make up to do together, to come together, to celebrate together, that while we are spreading out across the country and in our lives, there are now intentional moments to remind us of who the Jackson family is, to remind us of identity. And if you've ever been a part of a growing family or an aging family, you know that identity, who we are, doesn't happen by accident, and it's not preserved by accident. You've maybe been a part of this, coming up with a new text chain idea in the family that we share together, new events that we do to celebrate, reminders and photos that we look back through, videos to remind us of who we are. You may have even done this journey as an individual when you go to counseling or therapy to try and remind us who we are. It takes work and intentionality to know our own self-identity. If you've ever done the hard work of it, you know it doesn't happen naturally. It happens through intention, dedication, and time put in. This is how Paul is closing his letter to the Colossians. He's talked about the beauty of Jesus Christ how great he is. He literally uses the word supreme above all else. And what he's done for us and in us, the beauty of that, that we get to exchange our broken lives for his beauty and his peace. But then kind of at the end of it is, well, then what do I do? How how do I walk this out from here? The big idea in this final portion of Paul's letter is that it takes dedication And our focus needs to be on developing both our private life in Christ and our public understanding of Christ. It takes time and dedication, and they influence each other to focus on who we are internally, what my heart says, but also what I'm doing with my life. Because Paul makes a a great argument, but then the counter question is, well, now what? What do I do now with all that beautiful theology, Paul? where, Where do I go with this in my life? In a sense, this is saying your private life with Jesus should be shaping your public life for Jesus. And your public life for Jesus should be informing your private life with Jesus. And back and forth and back and forth. He's shaping me in my private moments of prayer so that I'm ready to say and to live a life of love in the public sphere. And as I do that, I learn about the people in my life and what's going on. I bring it back into that private sphere of prayer again. For all of us, we'll give some background of this letter, of why Paul's talking about this at the end of Colossians. And so if you've not been with us for the journey, Paul is correcting the very first Christian heresy, the very first 
Christian departure from what the norm is of who Jesus is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is another way of saying uh, a secret knowledge, uh, a knowledge beyond what everybody else knows. It's a small church in Colossae that used to be an important place that their industry has dried up. So it's a tiny town with a young church trying to figure out what a life following Jesus is about. And Paul hears from others that have relationship with this church that while they started out in Christ and knowing who they are in him, they've now started to try and go beyond that to, all right, there's got to be, the faith, the church, these songs aren't working for me anymore. So there's got to be something beyond this, past just who Jesus is, a secret knowledge beyond him that will give my life purpose and meaning again. This doesn't work anymore, so there's got to be something past it that I can then find that joy that I used to have, that peace that I'm longing for, a secret knowledge based on my working and earning for it. And Paul responds throughout the letter, not correcting that as much as emphasizing what is correct, how great Jesus is. And he says amazing things throughout the letter. He says for two and a half chapters, he says, nope, that's not what it is. It's not that you're tired of Jesus. It's that you've forgotten how very good, how very beautiful, and how very sustaining Jesus Christ is in your life. And if you're saying now that you need something beyond him, you have forgotten who he is. And you have forgotten the beauty that he speaks into your life. He says throughout the letter, things like, Jesus made the whole world. And he made all the things we can and can't see. He took a God that's hard to hear or touch or see because he lives beyond us. He made him visible and able to be touched and experienced in flesh. And not just that he was a good teacher, but that he was God himself putting on a human body. And in that human body, he went to a cross and he took on our shame, our fear, our doubts about what happens when we leave this earth, our fear and anguish over the things we've done to other people and our brokenness. And he took all of that on himself on the cross and he put it to death. And that when we feel lost or inadequate or broken or afraid, that Jesus offers us a peace by exchange of our past identity for a new identity in him. And that we can live together in peace with Jesus and with each other now and forever by him. It's a beautiful story, right? But then Paul is foreseeing the next question of, okay, great. How do I keep this going? This great letter, thank you, I can't read, but somebody read it to me. I'll try to remember everything that he said in this moment, but what do I do now? Because they could easily say back to Paul, I had this once. I, I knew this once. I went to that conference. It was three days long. It was really powerful. I left and I said to my friends, I'm never going to be the same again. I'm never going back there. I said that once and now it's 20 years later and I'm losing it. So do I just need a letter from you like every five, 10 years to like kick my butt again? Or what what do I do? And these four verses are Paul saying, everything I've taught you, the theory, the theology, here are the tools to keep this going. Here's the tools to put this into your life, to live this out, that we don't need to have this conversation again. Here's what you do. He puts it into three pieces. 
the conclusion of Colossians in three acts. Number one, prayer as an act of devotion. That my time alone, my time in silence and solitude is a devotional exercise to Jesus to experience who he is anew every day. Number two, prayer for Paul's mission to share the good news. He asked them to then put that into practice and pray for me and my life and my struggles. And then third and final, concern for how followers of Jesus act this out in public. What does their life look like? What's our testimony of, of who we are? How does this affect our public life? How does the private inform the public? How does the public speak into the private? Let's look at them one piece at a time. Let's look at verse two, prayer as devotion. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. This is honestly, even preparing this sermon, this is an area of spiritual life where I do struggle. I am, in my personality, a sprinter. I am not a marathon runner. I'm the guy you want if you have like a three-week deadline and we got to crunch this, get this going. I'm the guy. Put it on my back. Let's go. Let's do this thing. I'm not going to sleep for two nights. We're going to make this happen. But then if you have a 10-year plan, somewhere around year three, I'm like, what are we doing again? These flowers are really pretty. I'm the guy in baseball growing up in right field that's looking around at the dandelions and how cute they are. And I forget that I'm playing baseball. That's me. That's my personality. And so as Paul says, devote your mind and your heart to this work, day in and day out. For me, it's tough. Paul walks us through somewhat how to do this. We may be able to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in him. We can say it at an altar, or we can say it when someone asks, well, what, what do you believe about life or death? You say, I believe in Jesus. And what Paul would say to you at the end of this letter is, that may be enough to save your soul. It may, but it is not enough to bring peace into your life. It's not. Declaring it and living it are two different things. And declaring might. There's theology around there. I would say, yeah, I think, I think your soul is safe. But your life could still be misery anxiety-ridden, fear-induced. I don't know what, what's happening. Where am I? I, I? I don't know if anyone likes me or likes me enough or where am I finding my value? That Paul says, if you devote yourself to this person, to Jesus, and your own relationship with him day in and day out is the way to peace on this side of eternity, in the life you live right now, to know who you are and to have that peace. He says, devotion is a formative process. Devotion in prayer forms us through three simple things. The first, time. Time appointed in prayer. To schedule a time where I say this is time where I am literally doing nonsense. I'm not producing anything. I'm not touching or feeling anything. I am sitting in silence and trusting that the voice of God is around me and will speak into my soul. I am meditating in this moment, not planning out my day, but reflecting on what I already have and being reminded, as Paul has written to me, that I am enough in Christ Jesus, that my life has value because God came to restore me back, that my life is on purpose because in Genesis 1, God made me and breathed his life into me, that my life has a mission to lead and to love and to restore order into this world. 
And honestly, scheduling prayer may seem to some of us like a not very spiritual thing, but Paul is saying it is spiritual. Schedule it. Put it in your Google calendar. Write it down in your planner. Set it as a meeting for 15 minutes. I have a meeting. Who's that meeting with? The creator of all things who has redeemed my soul. I am meeting with him in a private setting. Like working out, you have to schedule it or it's not going to happen. I wake up, well, I go to bed every night with the understanding, tomorrow I will find a time to go run. And the next morning, I never find that time to go run. You know why? My schedule gets filled by everything else. And the things that I do do are the things I have scheduled ahead and put it aside. When I schedule that in my life, I do those things in my life. Paul says, schedule prayer as a devotional exercise in your life. It is not wrong or less spiritual to prioritize and protect your spiritual health by scheduling it. Schedule it. Second, it's a disciplined practice over time. It's saying no to other things, to say yes to the things that God has in our lives. It may mean shutting off your phone. It may mean taking a walk without any electronics, making sure on you version, if you're that type of person, that you have a plan you're doing on there and you're checking every one of the checks and you can see, oh man, I've had a run of 14 days. If that means a lot to you, go do that. But set parts of your life to keep you devotionally on it. It's all right to say no to things that are good, to say yes to care for your soul. And to say, yes, God, I'm going to prioritize the part of my life that is not metaphysical, that is spiritual inside of me moving and working. This is a metaphor that I use that helps me. Um, I, at times in my life, have been in the gym a lot. Not right now. And don't laugh that much. And that was too much. And in those moments, I've never been a gym bro. I've never been a gym rat. I've never been the guy that's really loud in the gym, and I've never had a buddy that's loud, you know, cheering on. But I get it, and I get why that helps people in those moments of like, come on, bro, you got this. Imagine in your spiritual life, and you can form a friendship where you have your spiritual life bros in your life who early in the morning are texting you. It's like, bro, it's time. Get up. It's time to meditate on the Lord, bro. Let's get this. You're reading. You're like, oh, boy, you are parsing that text. So great, man. Yeah, come on. Turn the page. You got this. Lift it up. Pray it. Submit yourself. Yes. Imagine that guy in your life, encouraging you on. We need that in every other area of our life. We get a mentor when we want to be better at our job. We get a gym, uh, a personal trainer when we want to get better in shape. Encourage and find other people that can encourage you in your spiritual life too. Be disciplined about it. Hold each other accountable. And lastly, he says, a commitment to prayer as the central part of your Christian life. That prayer is not an optional part of it or a sub-ministry we do as a church. It is the central formative practice of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. It is the moment of literal relational experience where I say, I believe that you are real and I believe that you are alive and I believe that you have things to say to me. And in this moment, I will quiet my soul and invite you to speak to me who you believe I am and where I need to go. It's about making that an identity statement for our life of who I am, who I am in Christ Jesus. 
And we can say that. I am someone who prays. Caitlin did a lot of babysitting and nannying when she was younger, and one of the families she really admired, the mother would speak identity into her children's lives. She would say, oh, you two are best friends. Oh, you love your sister so much. You're the best of friends. Before they even were, or when it didn't appear like they were, and you know what happened? They bought that identity, they picked it up, and they owned it, and they lived it. We need to start speaking into ourselves our own identity. I am somebody who rests in the assurance of God speaking into me. I am someone who prays. I am someone who believes in a God who lives beyond this physical experience. And I am someone who engages with my soul and my heart in times of quiet. Or as Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 11, he says, Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. This is like a, a funny example. If your friend doesn't want to help you, if you're annoying enough, he's going to be like, fine. It's like 2 a.m. and my neighbors can hear you. Just shut up. Like, here's the bread. Get out of here. And he's not saying annoy God until he gives you what you want. What he's saying is, if in our earthly lives, persistence produces results, so much so in your spiritual life with a father that loves you, persistence is going to produce results. And that result is not, I'm going to get that better job or that more attractive spouse or that new thing in my life. That was a weird example, a more attractive spouse. <laughs> Forget I said that. <laughs> Strike it from the live stream. My spouse is the most attractive I could ever have. I just need to say that. Yeah, amen. All right. <laughs> but he's saying... The more you persist in God's presence, the more he gives you what you need. And that is his loving presence and the affirmation that you are enough in Christ Jesus. And that what I need from Jesus is not new opportunities or open doors. What I need is reassurance of who I am in Christ Jesus. And the only time that happens is when I quiet my soul down and invite him to reaffirm that back into my soul and my heart. Paul says, if you do this then, it will produce now the external. We're going to move faster through the rest of this. Paul now asked them to pray for him. He says, pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. This is a beautiful thing that Paul does in almost every one of his letters. He begins with prayer. Almost every letter, he prays for the people he's writing to. He's like, I'm about to rip you apart for things you're wrong on, but before, I'm going to pray for you and express my love for you because the next part's going to sting. Then he closes the letter by saying, even though you may feel like I am not valuing your spiritual life or that I'm calling you out and you may be feeling shame right now, that's not what I have done this for. And so he proves it by saying, will you now pray for me? I prayed for you in the beginning of this. We've talked about difficult things, but 
I believe in God's work in your life. And I believe that your prayers for me are incredibly valuable. And while I may have spoken with authority in this, I am submitting my authority to you and asking you to pray for me. I think this is a, one of those obvious things in Scripture that we miss constantly, and then we miss it in our Christian life. I have been around Christians for a long time. I have pastored them for a long time. One of my pet peeves is a dedicated saint in the church who prays for everybody, cares about them, prays at the altar. They're on all the prayer lists. They're on Facebook prayer lists. They're on Instagram prayer lists. They're on the email prayer list. They're doing all the prayers, right? And then two weeks go by and I haven't seen them. And I see them and I'm like, oh, how are you doing? They're like, I'm fine, pastor, but I had cancer and I, I had treatment and I didn't want to tell anybody. And I go, what the, what? You are the one praying for everybody else. But when the moment came for you to ask us to pray for you, What? Was it pride or was it you didn't want to inconvenience us? And normally that's what it is. I didn't want to inconvenience you with the thought that I might die. And Paul says, I'm not going to live that way. I will be praying for you and I am expecting you to be praying for me. And while I'm going to speak into your life vulnerable areas where I think you're wrong, I'm going to invite you into the vulnerable areas of my life where I very well may be wrong. I am in prison and I'm writing these letters with hope, but there's a part of me that's scared, guys, that I don't know if I can communicate it clearly enough. I don't know if in this stage of my life I can. I need your prayers to help me do this. I need your prayers to move it forward. Not just is he telling them that your prayers are an active devotional part of your life, but he's then saying, I believe it so much that I'm asking your prayers to affect my life. Paul calls it a mystery, the great mystery of God's work in their lives. But we know what the mystery is because he says it in Colossians 1.27. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing the glory. The mystery is a mystery no longer. Paul says this in multiple of his letters. The mystery was and now is taking place that Christ lives in you that the God that was far away that you felt was judging you or distant or impossible to understand or reach, or maybe you said he just doesn't exist. It's just a mythology that helps other people who are weak or are afraid. Paul says, no, now that God can live in you. You don't believe me? Try it. Invite him in and you will see that he is real and active and speaking into your life. It's another reminder that Paul sees the life of prayer as a devotional, formational understanding of who Christ is. And then the last thing he speaks to them, verses four and five, maybe the hardest for us, concern for how followers of Jesus act in public. He has three pieces of advice for them. First, be wise towards those who don't believe like you. Be wise in how you talk to them, how you, how you speak with them. Two, make the most of every opportunity and then three, frame all conversations with grace. A lot of translations, I think, have a better wording of season it with salt, all of your conversations. And the context here is, in the early church, there were rumors about who Christians were and what they did in their weird, mysterious services. 
We live, you know, now 2,000 years later and Christianity has become ubiquitous around the world and we feel like sometimes we can't avoid it. I'm a pastor and sometimes I'm like, ah, Christianity is everywhere. It's everywhere now. But for them, it was this weird, mysterious religion that Romans didn't understand. And there were rumors about what Christians did. They didn't practice the worship of hundreds of gods. And so effectively in Rome, they were atheists. Weird for us to say now, but Christians were atheists. They didn't believe it. They didn't worship Apollo. They didn't worship Zeus. They didn't worship Hera. They didn't come in and worship these gods. So they must be atheists. They're like one singular God thing. We don't really get it. Why don't they care about the gods who made them? It's one rumor about them. The second is that they were sexual deviants because they treated women with respect and women were involved in their prayer meetings and came together and they would pray in intimate settings with men and women together late into the night. And they would say only one thing that could be happening in that setting, they're sexual deviants. They come together, they do their weird sex acts in their prayer life. They don't separate the genders the way we do in the proper way. And the third is, and the craziest of them, is that early Christians were cannibals because in the center part of their theology is their eating the flesh of their savior and drinking the blood of their savior. We have 2,000 years of it becoming a norm that doesn't sound so weird, but it's weird to sit and say, the God that we love, Jesus, this Jewish rabbi who died on the cross for us, we're gonna come together, we're gonna eat him and we're gonna drink him. And Romans would go, this weird religion of atheists having sex with each other and, and drinking the blood and eating the body of their savior, weird thing. And so Paul is saying, there are rumors about who we are and what we're like. And so when you interact with Romans, when you interact with the culture around you, you need to be wise and you need to be above reproach in how you have conversations with them. And they may be saying things about you that are unfair, that are unkind, that are outright lies. They may be trying to steal your property and and get you thrown in jail, but that's not what you do. You love them and act with wisdom. Paul says this again to a young pastor in 1 Timothy 1.7 about the call for an elder. He says very, very carefully, also, people outside of the church must speak well of this person so that they will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. He's saying people outside of the church should know that you are kind, loving, and respectful people. Show them that following Jesus makes us better citizens of Rome. It makes us better members of the community. It makes us more contributive members of the school board. It makes us more contributive members of the market. We give more generously. We care for the poor. We make the city better. Show them that. We may be bad for those who sell idols and those who love violence in the Colosseum and cultic prostitution, but we are good for Rome. And show them that. We pay our taxes on time. We do not steal. We work hard. We live at peace with other people. Be wise to those who don't believe like you. Make the most of every opportunity and frame all conversations with grace. Our problem today is honestly, and I'll be blunt, and I've been blunt from the stage about it, that I think a lot of our issues aren't even just rumors about Christians, but I think actual things that we've done and said that were wrong. And we are paying the cost of our sins and our unkindness and our divisiveness. And we have to, all the more, in confession and repentance, 
love and live a life of kindness in this world. We have to own the things that we've done wrong. We also have to fight against the rumors that even go beyond that. Be wise, Paul says. Be wise in how you interact with those who don't believe like you. Those who disagree, how you handle your Twitter account or how you text to others. Be wise when you go to Thanksgiving and you're with your uncle who has different beliefs or your young niece who you think is a radical. Be wise in how you interact with each other. Love and the key to wisdom, as the author of Proverbs tells us, is just one word, listen. Listen. Listen before you speak. Listen to someone else's life before you contribute your opinion of how their life is. Listen to people who don't have a life like yours, a diversity of life, different age, gender, class, race. Listen to their life before you speak into what Jesus Christ has spoken into you. Otherwise, they're not going to listen to you. Your job is not to change anyone. I'll say this again. Your job is not to change anyone. Your job is to love them. And as we love them, we point them to the one who can perform transformation and change in Christ Jesus. I have given counsel to parents whose young children are walking away from the faith and they're so desperate about it, they're so scared about it that they're beating them over the head and lecturing them in every meal and every dinner. And I said, relax. You are not going to browbeat your child back into faith. You are not. You can patiently and lovingly trust the Holy Spirit to do his work in their life and love them unconditionally and live your life of kindness and love out and show them what a life following Jesus is like. Ending friendships with those who don't believe like you is never the action of a Christian but too often it is. They may believe different like you. They may be a jerk. Who cares? Continue to love and befriend those. And last, it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't argue on the internet. Stop it. Just stop altogether. Don't do it. Don't even DM them privately. That's worse. Just love them and have conversations in person. And maybe Paul would say, Pray for them. Pray for them and trust the Holy Spirit to do the work that we can't. Second, he says, make the most of every opportunity. John Piper famously has a sermon where he says, don't waste your life. Paul is saying, don't waste your life. For the younger generation, for me, I can, if I want to, I can entertain myself through all of life and into the grave without ever having to deal with the pain and hurt of what it means to live on this side of heaven. It hurts on this side of heaven. We live and we lose and our bodies fall apart and relationships are painful and global pandemics sweep across the whole world and we lose people and it's tough and we have to wear masks and there's all this divisiveness. It is hard and it's very easy to numb myself away from the pain by just binging and binging entertainment. Paul says, don't do that. Don't shrink away from the pain. Make the most of every opportunity. Stay engaged. Put the phone down. Have the conversations. Turn the show off and read a book. Engage with people around you. And don't lose your life. Don't give up. And don't check out. Third and final, 
He says, frame every conversation with grace. Be a person people want to be around. Be someone that lights up the room when you're there. I know a lot of Christians that have said, it says that we'll be persecuted and I'm being persecuted for my faith. I said, no, people are reacting because you're a mean person and they're distancing themselves from you. That's not the same. Love people and be present with them. As Paul is saying, focus on making other people better. Focus on making your community better. Making your office better, your classroom better, your extended family better. Better by your very presence being there. And if you are getting the sense that people don't want to be around you, bring that into your prayer time and ask God, why is this happening in my life? and transform me, and make me like you. Jesus, as we read in the gospel stories, is the most attractive person you could ever read about. He would try. He'd be like, don't tell anybody. And they'd be like, gotta tell people. And he'd be like, I just want to be with my close friends. They're like, here's a party. They couldn't help it. My life is not that attractive. How do I, in my prayer time, in my devotional time, inviting Jesus to make me more like him, that my external life will be seasoned with the salt of Christ Jesus' love and grace? Very few people have been argued into the kingdom, but billions have been loved into it. Will we be agents of love in this world that's hurting? As I close out, And we finish Colossians. We see he's speaking to us that as we shape our inner life, as we live it out in our external life, it's about believing that Jesus is the center point of our faith. A life that begins in discipled prayer, but it also means an abundant life overflowing with the joy and love of Jesus. It is not lost on me today that today is the start of Holy Week, and today is Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus Christ entered into the city, and people were so excited to see him that they literally just grabbed anything. There are connections you can make in the Old Testament to the palms or the jackets, but the base level is Jesus is coming, he is sacred and significant. I don't even maybe know why at this point in history, but I know he's special. So I got, I got to do something. I, give me that tree. I'm going to cut a branch off, throw it down. Whereas like, I'm going to take my coat off. I'm going to throw it down. Whatever I can, I want to throw it down before him because he's significant. And I see something unique and special and powerful in who he is. Those who saw Jesus and recognized the beauty of who he was, were the ones who were then transformed by him. And in this season, we all have opportunities to enter in and be transformed by the love and grace of Christ Jesus. Because Paul finishes this letter with these practical parts, how we live in the world, how we pray, but he began the bulk of the letter by simply saying how great and how good Jesus is. He says, you want peace in your life, in Christ Jesus, he declares you good enough. He says, this is my child who I made 
lovingly at the beginning of creation. I knew who you would be, and I saw in my eye who you are and made you on purpose. And all those weird, quirky things about you, those things you do that you feel are kind of embarrassing, I love them. I love them so much that I put on flesh and I lived like you so that I could have you back. And we read Jesus in Scripture. We may live in a generation where we see every hurt, every dark, embarrassing thing of the church, all the sinful, destructive things the church have done. We see them. We should own them. But when we see Jesus, when we read the stories of his life, it is hard to not be overwhelmed by his beauty, his grace, and his love. And that he entered this world to have a relationship with each and every one of us. And that he took on our sin and our shame, our fear, our doubts, our brokenness, and he died on a cross, was buried in the grave, so that we could be set free and live a life of freedom, knowing we are loved and knowing we are enough and knowing that one day when we leave this existence, we can open it again in a resurrected reality where God is present and there is love eternal because of Christ Jesus. I want to give you a chance to pray this morning. If wherever you are, if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'll give you a chance to just pray this and we close every service this way. It's a moment for us just to commit, to take a step of faith in following Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I'll just give you an encouragement in this one moment, this one step of faith begins a journey towards peace and life eternal. If you are, make this a moment to reconnect and recommit to the goodness of Christ Jesus in your life. As Paul would say, reconnect to the idea that Jesus is enough for you. Pray this with me. Jesus, in this moment, I believe that you were God, that you are God come to earth and put on flesh. And that in my brokenness and in my sin, in my shame and fear, you took all of that onto yourself. You took it on yourself on the cross and you died in my place. And that on the third day you rose again resurrected and full of life and that if I follow you, I too could have that fullness of life. And in this moment, Jesus, I declare you as Savior and Lord. You gave your life to me today. I commit to follow you with my life. Will you come and be present in my life? Will you speak to me and make me new? I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you.